Welcome to episode 58 of the History of Skipton podcast series. My name is Ian Lockwood, and I'm the author of the book, The History of Skipton, on which the series is based. As the crowds swarm down High Street, few pay much attention to the many narrow gaps between the shops. Some are gated, some are dead ends, but some provide a shortcut to the canal or the eastern side of the town for those in the know. These are the final clues showing how the town initially developed from its Georgian footprint to accommodate an influx of workers connected with the canal and the cotton mills. The Earls of Thanet, owners of large swathes of the town, refused to sell any land for development and so there was an opening for the owners of inns and houses along the high street to turn their gardens, stables and outbuildings behind their property over to housing. A narrow entrance led to a yard, the oldest of which, according to Geoffrey Rowley's study of property records, was Kendall's Yard, dating from around 1720. This was built by John Kendall, landlord at the Hole in the Wall pub on the high street, and consisted of just four houses, but he had started a trend. Rogers Yard, off Sheep Street, had 11 houses in 1762, and 30 by 1823. Like all the yards, these houses were small, cramped and insanitary. Rogers Yard was wiped off the map by demolition in the 1950s. Untangling the knot of these yards is nigh impossible. Often they change names to reflect changing ownership and the majority of the houses themselves were knocked down more than 50 years ago. Their entrances though remain, although sometimes new owners have installed gates to thwart access rights in the intervening years. Some yards do remain. Hallam's Yard and Canal Yard survived the cull of demolition and many of its properties are now holiday cottages. However, the area between these two yards, which now provides parking for residents, and of course, holiday cottage visitors, was once another row of cottages called Sweep's Yard. Very few of the holidaymakers realised just how cramped and dark these yards were. Although these yards off the high street were densely populated, the growth of the mills and the railway meant that even more housing was needed. In 1870, the Craven pioneer commented on the amount of new houses being built in the town. Their list shows plots of two or three houses being built by a number of different builders for a range of developers. There were 33 houses in under construction in the Keithley Road area alone, but there was no overall plan. As the paper commented, as soon as one house is completed, tenants are ready to occupy them. The influx of population caused by the increase of our manufactories 
renders the demand for dwelling houses greater than the supply. Not all the building was done by private enterprise. Club houses on Newmarket Street was built by a mutual organisation first set up in the town to provide a sick fund for ailing members. The members met every Saturday in the old George pub and eventually decided to go into house building, erecting six houses and a pub, the Cross Keys, on land off Newmarket Street. The club was thriving, but then it got involved in some unknown litigation which diverted its funds away from mutual help and into the pockets of lawyers. Membership of this club, once near 1,000, melted away so that barely 30 members were left. So the club was wound up and its property sold off to pay outstanding debts. The clubhouses were renamed Tradesman's Place. A stone marking the site was preserved and eventually relocated to the small garden on Newmarket Street, established when the area was cleared. You can still see the stone there to this day. Meanwhile, the Cross Keys pub moved to occupy a part of the old grammar school. In 1875, the local papers carried an advertisement inviting people to join the Broughton Road Building Club, which said it planned to build 53 houses in that part of the town. For a deposit and a monthly subscription for two years, members would be provided with a property, which they would rent, but paying a premium until their outstanding cost of the house had been met. The construction of these houses, by private builders or by building clubs, was supervised by the Skipton Board of Health, who insisted on proper drainage and sanitary provisions, and this was not always taken kindly. A builder called Emmanuel Watkinson, who was developing on Broughton Road, had an acrimonious meeting with the Board of Health in November 1877, when he told them, It is a great mistake to put water closets in poor people's houses. It's a bigger evil than privies ever were. He did not expand on why he thought flushing lavatories were bad for the town's poorer population. Emmanuel Watkinson fell foul of the board regularly. In July 1881, he wrote to them after being told that he needed to pay footpaths in front of his houses instead of leaving them as crushed ash. Watkinson replied to say he failed to see why he should bear the £60 cost. The amount of housing required considerable disruption as the local board insisted on adequate water, sewage and drainage supplies. This could cause problems, and there were complaints that the way large parts of the town were being dug up to lay pipes, particularly along Broughton Road, where a new railway station had just opened. In 1878, the authorities needed to take a large sewage pipe across the canal to link up with Newtown. The speed at which they carried out the work is instructive. And may I say, I'd wish modern contractors could follow this. 
Almost two miles of the Leeds-Liverpool was canal, uh, canal was drained, including the Springs Canal. This took a whole day, the Tuesday. The following day, the Wednesday, a large workforce descended on the town, watched by hundreds of Skiptonians, a fair number of whom jumped into the mud to scavenge coal dropped from barges which had supplied warehouses or mills on the affected banks. The necessary pipes were laid, and the canal company's own work to repair canal walls was also completed by 10.30pm on the same day. The stops were opened on the canal, and it was full again by midnight. This massive undertaking had all happened in 24 hours. Death duties finally loosened the grip on the large tracts of land in Skipton owned by the absentee Earls of Thanet. In March 1883, the Craven Herald reported an auction of 15 lots in Skipton, plus a few more outside the town, of various packages on behalf of the trustees of the young Earl. It was, said the Herald, the biggest sale of property ever known in Skipton. But a general economic depression meant most did not reach a reserve price and they were withdrawn. As the population of Skipton grew rapidly, the area known as Middletown was expanded in the 1880s as the Earls sold off parcels of land to private building speculators. A real obstacle was the entrance on Sackville Street, which was much narrower then than it is today. Between the canal and the entrance to Sackville Street was a police station, two police houses and a couple of shops. The local board negotiated with the newly formed West Riding County Council and agreed to buy two houses, one in Cavendish Street, the other in Brook Street, as replacement homes for the police houses. And in 1892, the council pulled down the original buildings to create the wide space on Sackville Street we know today. The police station, which was pulled down, had been built in 1854, originally for Skipton's parish constables. It had three bedrooms, a living room, a sitting room, and three cells to hold prisoners before they were brought in front of the magistrates. Two years after it had been constructed by the, for the parish constables, i.e. those of the local police force, recruited and paid for by the parish, the government passed the Police Act, which required counties to establish a police force, and the West Riding Constabulary took over the Skipton building. Skipton's first superintendent, called Beanland, quickly decried the 1854 building as too small and inadequate and forcefully pressed for a replacement. Eventually, it was demolished to make way for this new Sackville Street entrance and the new police station on Otley Street opened in 1892. It is still the headquarters for Skipton Police although much of the work has been transferred to Harrogate and the police cells are no longer used. If you have the misfortune to be arrested anywhere in the Craven area, you'll be taken to Harrogate Police Station. Very convenient.
As the house building continued, almost without respite, there were constant complaints about the buildings and pavements creating a huge mess. The local board took a key role in the process and began insisting that pavements rather than rough ash was used, as we've seen in the case of Emmanuel Wilkinson. Existing pavements were also constructed. The first was in Gargrave Road, then Grassington Road, and Otley Road got them in 1893. One of the chief builders in Skipton was Thomas Duckett, a Burnsell-born man who arrived in Skipton, aged 22, in 1874. He quickly built up a thriving building industry, mainly by building houses in the Middletown area, where you can find one street named after him. His first houses were Ron Rowland Street, and when he died in 1929, his obituary remarked that Middletown as a district was largely built by him. Operating from a depot on Belmont Wharf, Thomas Duckett was to handle projects such as the construction of Christ Church and Ings schools and the college building off the high street, although not its facade. One particularly bad area of the town was Westgate, around the top of the modern Court Street car park. The Skipton MP, William Clough, remarked that he would not keep rabbits in Westgate, and it was blamed for pushing up the death rate in the Skipton West Ward. The death rate was 28 deaths per thousand population, yet in the Skipton East Ward, the death rate was just 12 deaths per thousand. The Herald put the death rate in Westgate itself as close to 40 per thousand population. A 1911 council report identified 200 properties as the source of the problem, and the council bought up 30 of them for demolition. Another 70 were boarded up, and another 30 condemned. The Herald said, the sweeping away of the crime-breeding and evil-smelling area of Skipton will be a blessing to the whole of the town. This was the first example of slum clearance in Skipton. Another damning indictment of the town was made in 1926, when a national newspaper, the Daily Chronicle, described Skipton as having the world's worst slums. The article looked at areas such as Union Square off Broughton Road, Greenside off Newmarket Street and Westgate to deliver its verdict. The Daily Chronicle wrote, A tour through the meanest districts of the town has made me wonder whether any of the great cities can show more squalid slums than those which disgrace this little Yorkshire market town. Within a stone's throw of the main street, and the market square, are hideous courts and alleys, paved with sets and foul with grime and dirt of the canal and beck, which flows, by no means a cleansing stream, a step or so beyond. 
One wonders to what amazing design the old builders of Skipton worked that so appalling a result should have been achieved. Even in the comparatively modern parts of the town, the houses are ill-designed and grey in outlook. Long terraces of dull stone houses with front windows onto the unmade streets and with tiny backyards separated from precisely similar backyards only by a six-foot passage, meet the eye wherever one looks. Now, whether or not the reporter had resorted to hyperbole, the article offended Skipton's elder statesman, who had been making efforts to present Skipton as a tourist destination, and even a Spartan. The council described the article as scurrilous, the person who conducted the report on his town was a traitor, and the effect it could have was a great disservice. Councillor G. Aldersley, chairman of the Housing Committee, set out his response in an interview with the Craven Herald. The reason some of the houses mentioned were still occupied was only because of an acute housing shortage. And that's a response which in itself tacitly admits that the article had a measure of truth in it. Some houses had been condemned before the war and the council had issued several notices demanding improvements from the owners, which had been complied with. The council was pressing on with its housing programme as fast as it could and already 90 houses had been built with another 40 in the pipeline. Council Aldersley continued, Slums are to be found in almost every town, and probably, in this respect, Skipton is no worse than many other towns. Union Square, which had been mentioned, has the record of having the least number of scarlet fever cases in the town, and as to the foul orders of Ella Beck referred to in the article, I fail to see where these orders emanate from, as no sewage or effluent is discharged into this stream. Yet, if an outsider was not allowed to criticise, the council's own medical officer, Dr William Scatterty, did. Asked why there had been an infant mortality spike in 1929, he responded, there was no one single reason, but poor housing did not help. He continued, I cannot flatter you by saying that the housing conditions are satisfactory. In some of the yards and closes, they never see daylight. They never have a breath of fresh air blowing through them. They are too narrow and congested. The death rate of infants under 12 months was 134 per 1,000, said Dr Scatterty. This was more than twice the national average at the time. I just want to emphasise that. In 1929, the man in charge of the health of the town was saying that a Skipton baby was twice as likely to die before the age of one than was the average for the country as a whole. Dr Scatterty seems to have fit the stereotype of a dour, gruff Scotsman. He was from Aberdeen. When the council asked him to prepare a report explaining better 
why infant mortality in the town was so high, he caused a sensation when he came up with three reasons. His report asked three questions. 1. Are Skipton parents so degenerate that they cannot breed children capable of living for 12 months? 2. Is the home environment of the infants bad? 3. Is the duty of motherhood indifferently understood by Skipton parents? He offered no answers, but said it could be a single one or a combination of all three factors. The truculent doctor proposed campaigns to better educate parents, an expansion of the maternity clinic service on Water Street, and a programme to improve the housing to overcome the situation. He had another suggestion. Schools should start teaching girls aged 13 to 15 housewifery and mothercraft rather than millinery and dressmaking. A month after Scatterty had asked the questions, there were inquests into two child fatalities in the town. One was scalded to death when she fell into a tin bath of boiling water. Another was suffocated as it slept between its parents at night. So perhaps his rather provocative attack on the skills of Skipton parents had some basis. So, by 1930, we have a picture of Skipton not as the pretty tourist trap it would have us believe today. Behind the scenes, much of its housing was slums. A clearance programme had begun, and many of these slum houses have been cleared away, and a fair proportion of what is left is used as holiday accommodation. How many Airbnbers are aware that the weekend cottage they delight in is in fact the world's worst slums of the 1920s? Next time, we'll be looking at how the council tackled this housing problem. Thank you for listening.